Thank you, Floyd. <clears throat> Scripture reading this morning uh, comes from Nahum chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, we read, <clears throat> The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal. On the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins, all faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions where the lion and lioness went. Where her cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. May God bless the reading of His Word. You know, I was reading an article the other day, and and the writer told a story about a teenager, teenage boy in New York City. And this teenage boy was walking down the street, one of the busy streets in New York City. And as he was crossing this busy street, he didn't notice this oncoming truck. And so just before this young man darted out into traffic and was hit by this speeding truck, a strong hand grabbed his shirt and pulled him back to the sidewalk to safety. Well, this young teenage boy obviously was very startled. And he looked back and he thanked the older gentleman uh, for saving him. But it, interestingly enough, several weeks later, this same teenager was in court uh, at trial for stealing a vehicle. And when the boy looked up at the judge, he recognized him and said, Hey, you're the man who saved me a few weeks back uh, when that truck was coming towards me. You know, surely you can do something now. Well, then the judge replied and said, Sorry, son. On that day, I was your savior. But today, I'm your judge. And I was reading that story and I was thinking, you know, that's that's like a modern parable, a short modern parable of the city of Nineveh. You know, I mentioned this last week when we looked at chapter 1, but in the 8th century, 
God gave a man named Jonah a message to take to the Ninevites, to the city of Nineveh, and to preach against them because of their evil and their idol worship. And what we learn from the book of Jonah is that uh, the people repented of their sin and turned to God. And God showed mercy to them and did not destroy the city. You know, at that moment, Jonah was like that older man keeping his teenager, keeping his teenager from getting hitting by the truck. He was taking God's message and they responded and they were thankful for being saved from destruction. But then the Assyrians turned their backs on the grace and the mercy that was shown to them. And they plunged themselves into idolatry and great acts of evil. And after about 150 years, after Jonah's famous message, God sent another message to, uh, or at least about Nineveh. This time the message was not to Nineveh, it was actually to Judah. Because you see, the people of God were under the oppression and rule of the Assyrian Empire for more than 100 years. And God sent this message concerning Nineveh through the prophet Nahum. And it was a message of comfort. It is a message of comfort. And it was a message for comfort for them and for hope. Because, you know, they were looking forward to the day that God would bring deliverance from the oppressor. Just like he had done in Moses' day when God brought his people out of Egypt. You know, they were looking forward to that day. They were looking for deliverance. They were looking for restoration. Uh, They were looking for freedom. They wanted to be who God wanted them to be. They wanted to worship the way God had instructed them to worship. And they were looking forward to that day. So when Nahum came on the scene with this message of hope, there was great anticipation, great excitement for what God was going to do. And this message of comfort and hope was that God was going to bring an end to the Assyrian oppression. You know, Nineveh was like that teenager who was saved from destruction, but then turned its back and plunged deeper into evil. And so now, in this book, God tells His people that He's going to bring about judgment on the Assyrians. And there are two statements that I want to draw your attention to in this chapter. The first statement I want us to look at is at the beginning of verse 13, at the very end of the chapter. It says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And specifically, God is saying, I am against you Ninevites, you Assyrians. I am against the Assyrian Empire, he says. And Nineveh, being the capital city, the stronghold of Assyria, you know, represents the power of Assyria. And God says, I am against you, Nineveh. And if you think about it, you know, Nineveh not only represents the power of Assyria, but Nineveh represents um, the pride of humanity. I mean, it represents what may be called the city of man. You know, the city of man is the endeavor to build a life or even a society apart from the one true God. And Nineveh was its shining example. One of the kings of Nineveh said this about himself. He said, I am the great king, the mighty king, king of the universe, king of Assyria. The great gods magnified my name and they made my rule powerful. Another king of Assyria was even more boastful and said, 
I am powerful. I am all-powerful. I am a hero. I am gigantic. I am colossal. You kind of see what we're dealing with here. I am honored. I am magnified. I am without equal among all kings. So, you know, these folks were just dripping with arrogance and pride. And that's what characterized the Assyrians. And you see this same type of arrogance recorded for us in 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 28 through 35. And this event that's recorded here occurred after Jonah, but before Nahum. And just listen to what, uh, see, see what you can pick up about this nation of Assyria. See if you can pick up what type of people uh, represented the kingdom of Assyria. Beginning in uh, verse 28 in 2 Kings 18, it says, Then Rabshaki stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah, Hezekiah was the king of God's people at the time, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the, out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Shepharim, Hena, Eva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. So this is the type of arrogance and pride that resided within the kings of Assyria and the people of Assyria. Now, in fact, God, if you continue to read, God, in fact, did deliver his people from the hand of Assyria in this instance. But what eventually happened is that the people of God sought out Assyria for help. And what ended up happening is they became a vassal state of the Assyrian Empire to serve them and pay tribute to them. And it was through this ruthless conquering of these kingdoms like Judah that Assyria became so powerful, so wealthy, and they just seemed to be you know, unconquerable. And so when Nahum comes on the scene, the city of man seems to be superior to the city of God. I mean, look at them. Wealth, power, seemingly unconquerable. But we read in Nahum chapter 1 verse 2, these words about God. He says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Now when you hear that, that may surprise you that the Lord would be called a jealous God because you think of jealousy as a vice rather than a virtue, right? Because if we're jealous, which usually means I am trying to 
obtain or I desire something that belongs to another, so I'm jealous of them. That's how we usually use the term as a vice. And so you think, God is a jealous God. What is, what is that about? How does that work out? Well, jealousy is not always a vice. It can also be a virtue. For example, let's say someone steals your car. You would become jealous for your car. In other words, you would desire your car to be returned to you because it rightfully belongs to you. Right? You would have a zeal to try to gather up what is rightfully yours. That is jealous. That is being jealous for your car. And so there's a sense in which you can be jealous for justice. Jealous for what is right. Meaning you are zealously working for what, what is right and what ought to be. And so now let's apply that meaning to God. Uh, one writer states it this way. He says, God is a holy God and is never sinfully jealous. Uh, he is never jealous because he is needy, greedy, or covetous, or because he is lazy and unwilling to put forth the effort necessary to accomplish his purposes. God is not jealous because he takes a petty dislike to certain individuals and begrudges their achievements or because he is frustrated with his position in the universe. He is infinitely glorious and worthy of our praise and adoration. There is no one like God. He is completely self-sufficient. He is the uncreated creator who ought to be worshipped by, by all that he has made. He has the right to command our obedience, love, and devotion. And therefore, He is rightfully jealous when we do not worship and serve Him. Which is the very best thing we can do for ourselves and for others. To worship anything or anyone other than the triune God of the Bible rightly provokes the Lord to jealousy. And it cannot be any other way. J.I. Packer says it this way, The jealousy of God is His holiness reacting to evil in a way that is morally right. And so you can see how His jealousy for what is right, for what is rightfully His and belongs to Him alone, is executed through His justice. And we see that in the second part of Nahum chapter 1, verse 2, because it tells us that God is not only a jealous God, but that He is an avenging God. Now, what this means is that when people go against God in His ways, that He will ultimately bring them to account. So God is the supreme judge. He is the one that we're ultimately accountable to. So when we read in Nahum chapter 2, verse 13, when God says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, we realize that God stands in, as a judge over Nineveh. And He is bringing them to account. And the way He's going to execute his judgment in the here and now for them was the destruction of Nineveh, the complete destruction of the Assyrian Empire. You know, just think about it. I may talk more about this next week, but COVID is, is kind of waning. People are traveling more, thinking about going to see different sites. You're not hearing much about people going to see Nineveh, right? Like, I want to go see the luxurious city of Nineveh. Well, the reason you're not going to go see the luxurious city of Nineveh is because it has been completely destroyed. And all that is left is rubble, even to the day, to this day. 
And so people aren't planning extravagant vacations to see Nineveh because God has executed His judgment on Nineveh and has completely destroyed it. And so what you see is this complete reversal in this chapter, complete reversal of fortune for the Assyrians. Look at verses 9 and 10. Nahum says, Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt, knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. See, Nineveh represented this empire that plundered the nations and now itself will be plundered. You know, and the Assyrians often would compare themselves to lions who would choke their prey and bring in, uh, you know, uh, food for all of the uh, other lions to feast upon. In verses 11-13 we read, Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his cage with prey and his dens with torn flesh. But then we see in verse 13, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. So whereas the Assyrians would choke out the nations, now they themselves would be choked out, never to rise again. You know, one of the key statements of this chapter is found in verse 13, where the Lord sets His face against Nineveh because of their idol worship and their evil. But you know, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, you know, we're not Assyrians. You know, we never laid siege to Judah uh, or did any, any of those things. And so I thought, well, how does that translate to me and you? And then I was reminded of a passage in the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians in the New Testament. And I was reminded that, you know, in the Bible we learned that even though we're not Assyrians, we still tend to worship things other than God. And we still tend to seek to you know, build up our own city of man rather than submit to the city of God. And the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-4, through 4, he says, he's talking to Christians, he says, and you were, this was true of you before Christ, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So Paul's telling the Christians in Ephesus that before we became Christians, we were enemies of God. We had set our face against God, and we were going our own way. We were by nature children of wrath. In other words, we were like the Assyrians in that we were trying to build a life apart from the one true God. And that was true of all of us. And Paul is saying that just as God stood against the Assyrians, so God stands against those who arrogantly seek to put themselves in His place. 
you know, the destruction of Nineveh serves as a vivid example of what will happen if you stand against God. And what we see is that your kingdom may last for a time, right? I mean, the Syrians ruled over Israel for over 100 years. And so what we see is the city of man may rule for a time, but God will use His weapon of time to eventually bring your kingdom down and bring you to the judgment seat. And when that time comes, your eternal fate will be wrapped up in who or what you worshipped. So the question is, will you be like that teenager that experienced the grace and mercy of the old man only to find himself before the judge with no advocate? You know, everyone in this room, all of you, and myself included, have benefited from the grace and mercy of God. Every one of us has been pulled from that oncoming truck in some way or another. And every one of us has been exposed to a Jonah-type message of mercy and grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the question really is, you know, where do we stand with God? Where do you stand with God? You know, when you stand before the judgment seat of God, will God be for you or will He be against you? And this leads to the second statement that I want us to look at this morning, which is found in verse 2. Nahum writes, For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. You know, we've seen here that the Lord is jealous and avenge, He's a jealous and avenging God who brings justice on those who do evil and worship false gods. But this verse also tells us that God is a God who restores. Specifically, He restores His people. So, who are His people? You know, not many have said it better than the Apostle John in John 1.12 when he says, But to all who did receive Him, speaking of Jesus, to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. And again, John says it this way in John 3.16, quoting Jesus. He says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So the people of God are those who acknowledge who God is and have come to God the way that He has made possible for us to come to Him. And the way that God has made available to us to come to Him is through His Son, Jesus Christ. And what's interesting about this whole book of Nahum is that the restoration of Judah was accomplished through the judgment of Nineveh. And in a much greater way, our restoration comes through the judgment that was laid on Jesus Christ on our behalf. You know, Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we can be restored. He was raised from the dead so that we can experience new life forever. And so what we read in the Scriptures is that it's through Jesus Christ that God restores His people and His creation. You know, God is a God who restores. And so on Judgment Day, when you and I stand before God, He will either be for us or against us. He will either say He is against us or He will restore us if we're in Christ. 
And this made me think of our brother Richard Arnold. Many of you have heard that uh, our brother Richard Arnold passed away this past Wednesday. He went to be with the Lord. And on Wednesday night, during a prayer meeting, Ed made a statement. He said that our brother Richard is now standing with Jesus, no longer burdened by the leg braces he wore for so long. And the reason Ed made that comment is because Jesus is the restorer. He is the one who brings restoration to His people. He is the one who makes all things new for His people. And so if you have faith in Jesus, then you are among the people of God. And you are among those whom God will restore. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, am I among the people of God? Am I numbered among the people of God? Have I given up trying to build my life apart from Christ? And have I turned to God and received His free gift of grace through Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior? Or will we be like that teenager that tasted the grace of God, the goodness of God, and turned his back on it, only to face the judge with no advocate? So don't be like the teenager. Don't be like the Assyrians. Don't turn your back on the grace and mercy of God that has been extended to you through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of God and He will either be against you or He will be for you. And His verdict will be based on what you have done with His gracious gracious invitation of salvation through Jesus Christ. Did you turn your back on it? Or did you accept it? I want to encourage you, you if you've never given your life to Christ, if you've never made that shift from turning from building your life apart from God, living your life apart from God, to submitting to Christ as your Lord and your Savior, I want to urge you to make that decision today. And there's a helpful resource on the second page of your worship guide that will help you make that decision, aid you in that decision. But basically it involves turning. Turning from building your life apart from God to giving your life to God through faith in Jesus Christ because of what He's done for you. I want to encourage you to make that decision today. And for those of you who, like Micah, who have placed their faith in Jesus, you are the people of God. And God is for you, and God will restore you. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for these truths in Your Scripture, that You are holy, that You are just, that You are a jealous God an avenging God, but that You are a gracious and loving God, merciful, full of loving kindness. Lord, thank You that You have extended all of us grace and mercy. Lord, I pray if there's anyone who has not accepted Your gift of salvation through Christ, that they would do that today. And for those of us who are in Christ, may we give You praise today for Your mercy, for Your strong hand of grace that has pulled us from destruction so that we can experience restoration both now 
and forever. And we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.